This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. caverns deep below the metro area it is by the unholy grace of our mighty dark lord well matt's mighty dark lord that we welcome you to episode 666 of the two-headed nerd comic book podcast i'm your head number one the internet's joe patrick and to my parents if you're listening please know matt made me say all of this see i qualified it for you, you big I, baby. I appreciate that i really do I, you know me too well and i am but a humble servant of the beast your head number two. My name is Matt Baum. Today, on the most evil of episodes, the Cosmic Longbox returns to force us to review and discuss classic back-issue comics based on a theme, and this one, it's pure evil! After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week's new comic book day, but now the Cosmic Longbox hums to life, and we must answer its infernal call. It's back-issue review time. In the cigarette! Look, we're not bragging here, but not every podcast loves Satan enough to make it to episode 666. So... To demonstrate, I mean, our I have—it's—I have a healthy respect for his authority. Coward. So, to demonstrate our endless fealty to our horned king, the Cosmic Longbox has chosen our most evil theme yet. Deals with the devils. See, Satan doesn't rule every comic book hell, but he should. So, we decided to take a look at characters that made a deal with a devil from their respective universe. Some of which happen to be Satan. Huge special thanks to all the metal labels that allow us to use their music for yet another THN metal episode. You can find the complete soundtrack listings in our show notes if you're a slave to the metal like me. But Joe, he's not. And it's time to don our black robes and make a blood offering to the god below. Why don't you get us started with the only guy nasty enough to hang with the hoary hosts of hell, Mr. John Constantine. As Matt said, my first review is of Mr. Hellblazer himself. It's Hellblazer 45 from Point of Order, pre-Vertigo. It's DC Comics 1991. It's written by Garth Ennis with art by Will Simpson. And here is a brief synopsis, uh, courtesy of somewhere on the internet. I think it was DCComics.com. Thanks, DC. Oh, wow. In a last-ditch effort to cure his lung cancer, John Constantine pulls a scam on the forces of darkness with a capital D. But it's a gamble that may bring all the powers of hell down on Earth. Yikes, short and sweet. Hellblazer 45 is the conclusion of Dangerous Habits, what is probably considered the most famous John Constantine story ever created, and it's the primary basis for the Constantine movie, starring one Keanu Reeves. For those that don't know the premise of the story, John has discovered that he's dying from terminal lung cancer. Not only that, but he knows that his soul is bound for hell and torture at the hands of the first of the fallen, a.k.a. Satan who might be the closest thing Constantine has to an arch enemy. Ever the trickster, John concocts a plan to not only walk away unscathed, but with his soul intact and his cancer completely cured. But if his plan fails, it might mean the end of all life as we know it. 
This storyline is certainly one of the best Hellblazer stories ever and is often mentioned along with the best that Vertigo Comics had to offer. This is a young Garth Ennis coming into the peak of his power before the launch of Preacher, The Punisher, or anything else his depraved mind would eventually come up with. John Constantine has always been a bastard, but Ennis solidified him as not only an unrepentant ass, but also as one of the greatest con men to ever exist. For an issue that's nothing but talking heads, and I put heads in air quotes because half of the characters featured in this issue have no corporeal form, it's incredibly tense. John's gambling the fate of the world, maybe even the universe, to save his own selfish life, and these three lords of hell fighting for John's soul are just as likely to go to war out of spite and pride as they are to preserve existence. Dangerous Habits is an incredible story, brilliantly written, and one of the first things that comes to mind when I think about John Constantine. And this chapter is a near-perfect conclusion with an unforgettable final moment. All of that said... I really don't love the art. Yeah. Okay. By Will Simpson. It's very much in the vein of early nineties, proto vertigo style. Totally. But it's like, it's just, it's just not great. In my opinion, in my opinion, don't get me wrong. There's definitely talent here. And the designs of the demon Lords are suitably gross and constantly shifting in an unreal way that very much suits the story. Maybe it's just personal preference. Maybe it's the very bland color palette from colorist Tom Ziuko, which again, seems like it could be intentional considering how much of the story may or may not be happening in John's mind. They were going for a thing. They definitely but were. I, I just, but I don't love the thing. They I just don't they, love the thing. They didn't nail the thing. Like zero backgrounds, guys. Zero. Really? Except, except when sometimes there are, which makes me think like it's, it's either no backgrounds or some backgrounds you can't, or, or all backgrounds. You can't just have yeah. like, one panel every third page with like the corner of a room. Sure. That's, no, sure. that's lazy. And it's like a thing when someone goes, what? And the background's red because they're shocked. And that's, but like, this is just like a white background. Solid colors. Yeah. yeah just solid colors. The whole Weird. issue. Weird choices. Uh, however, this issue is all about the journey of John Constantine as a character, the emergence of Garth Ennis as a superstar writer, and the continued building of the foundation that would soon become Vertigo Comics. Uh, in 1991, we are, I think, just two years away from the formation of Vertigo. I believe that's correct. It was 93, right? 93, yep. Uh, I know it might seem counterintuitive to say that the art is the least important part of this comic book story, but it's true. Hellblazer 45, whether you love the visuals or not, is a quintessential piece in the history of John Constantine, the only man to ever trick not one, but three devils. I'm giving this a buy it. The, okay, and the best part about John tricking all three devils by selling his soul to all three of them is like he's playing by their rules. Yep. They screwed it up. <laughs> like you guys he, should have thought he of followed this stuff. The, he followed the letter of the law. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. you guys should have thought of this shit. Right? <laughs> yep. Oh man. No, this is an amazing Hellblazer story, and I totally agree. Now, just I don't know, a couple shows ago, we were praising Will Simpson's work on the Sandman episode when we were talking about death, right? And the first that appearance- That was not of, Will Simpson. That, that was Will Mike Simpson? Dringenberg. Oh, you're right. That was Mike Who Dringenberg. is the co-creator of death. You're right. I take that back. Yeah. Will Simpson is an artist I like, and I've seen stuff from Will Simpson it, that I do enjoy, but this, like he was going, like we said, he was going for a really creepy thing, and there are- panels that are super creepy the shifting faces of the three hosts you know like there's one that's just like a amorphous blob that skulls kind of come out of and stuff and that is creepy sure 
I like my demons and devils a little more Hellraiser, you know, a little more uh, labyrinth, a little scarier. I'm not saying they all have to have the big horns and the pitchfork and shit, but let's get scarier. That's all I'm saying. This was fantastically written, though. Garth Ennis, one of the greatest Hellblazer writers of all time. I'm not going to say the greatest. Because I don't know who is. <laughs> There's like three of them. No, that it's, I Gar- love. it's it's Garth it's Garth Ennis. Is he's Garth Ennis is the greatest Hellblazer writer of all I time. See, I will declare. It. I don't know. There, I like Jamie Delano. Kind of came up with so much formative stuff that was absolutely amazing. Yeah, he certainly did. But and you know what? So did Stan Lee, and Stan Lee is not the greatest Spider-Man writer. Oh, I I totally agree. But Stan Lee probably didn't even write the stuff he said he did in Spider-Man. So. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> no, this is a gigantic buy it. It's a great look at this weird hosts of Satan and everything that sort of ties loosely into Sandman stuff and books yeah. of magic and like, Oh, love it. Love so, it. Yeah. Like, so like the vertigo, the, the, the vertigo hell as it would become, as it would become vertigo is like ruled by a hierarchy of demons. Right. And they're not all like Satan is one. Beelzebub is another, like all of the various names, like Lucifer, like they're all individual characters. So like Lucifer from Sandman is his own guy. Right. And uh, Satan is the first of the fallen, Beelzebub, you know, so. And they broke it up because they were all egotistical jerks and not when one should not be in power. (laughs) Yeah. And so like they are congressmen of hell and they're all constantly fighting with each other. They're all shitheads. They all think they're the uh, best. (laughs) You know, like I'm I'm looking at Will Simpson's bibliography and he has done a lot of, he's done a little bit of a lot of things, but no like really protracted runs. So I can't say that I have ever like sunk my teeth into something I really loved by Will Simpson. I think we kind of confuse him with guys like, um, Mike Duringenberg, for example, Mike Duringenberg, Chris Weston, who drew the filth and uh, ministry of space. Chris Weston is outstanding. Uh, But like, there's this, there's this wave of Irish, Scottish and English artists. There's this wave of them that all kind of blend together in my mind, which I know is, is uh, a failing on my part. Um, but yeah, Will Simpson's just not one of the ones that caught on with me. Fair. I'm sorry. Fair. From a trio of Satans to the Satan, we move to Marvel Spotlight number five. Don't get excited. For now, it's the Satan. <laughs> From Marvel 1972. It was written by Gary Friedrich with art by Mike Plug. Here is your setup. Not only is this the first appearance of Johnny Blaze as the Ghost Rider, but we get him on page one. No intro needed. Bang! Ghost Rider! <laughs> the Ghost Rider's trolling around town, witnesses a murder. Now you would think, well, hey, he's a spirit of vengeance. This is right up his alley, right? But Johnny Blaze, he's a little shy at this point. He's still scared of his flaming skull and stuff. So he takes off and the murderers are like, hey, that weirdo on the bike sauce. Let's go get him. So they follow Ghost Rider into an alley where he reveals his flaming visage and introduces himself as <laughs> the servant of Satan. I, I, I loved the I loved the fact that one of the guys was like, "What are you so scared of?" He probably just has a glow in the dark helmet. Yeah, like this is the it's 70s. like pouring. Ra- it's it's raining so hard that you can't tell that his head's on fire. It's also and you're like, yeah, it's glowing in the dark. It's the glow in the dark helmet. It's also 1972. Yeah. Special effects are not there, let alone Halloween costumes. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, we, we ain't making glow-in-the-dark helmets that, no. that look no. like that. Yeah. This was before the satanic panic of the 80s, mind you, when Marvel was not afraid to throw Satan's name around. Later, they would change Johnny's master to a demon named Zarathos, and the guy who made the deal? That sneaky jerk Mephisto. Well, to... to- 
point of clarity, Zarathos is the demon he's bonded yeah. to. So he's the one that takes Johnny over and then Johnny like fights to control him. Yes. Now, I would say we don't need no fake devils, but is what it is. I get it. Moms were scared. The ghost. Look, we got it. We got a trading card in 1990 where they were like, hey, parents, did you know? Right. That Mephisto is definitely not the biblical Satan. Stop burning our comic books. It's not what you think. It's just a guy that looks like Satan, acts like Satan, has a tail like Satan, horns and rules hell. But it's not Satan. (laughs) I I remember I remember very distinctly my my parents finding my stack of Marvel cards and going straight to that card. And and asking me what the hell and me going, but look, it says right on the back that he's not the devil. That's like saying, look, yeah, this guy looks like a white supremacist, dresses like a white supremacist, hates, you know, all these different races. But uh, he's not Hitler. I just really (laughs) love the cloaks. Okay, (laughs) the ghost. This ghostwriter is a chatterbox. He's narrating everything he does, including his own origin which he tells the reader he's now going to recount to try to understand why he's the ghostwriter starting now. It's a true tale of woe. And this is like, it just comes out of him. He's like, maybe if I sit down and think about how all this happened, I can figure it out. Here right. goes the readers. Uh, it's like, it's like that scene. Uh, it's like the beginning of walk hard yeah. where Tim Meadows says to the stage and it's like, he can't go on until he thinks about his entire life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's a true tale of woe. Johnny's dad was a stunt writer, killed during a show. Johnny gets adopted by the fellow family of writers and joins the motorcycle circus act, only to kill his adopted mom by accident while trying to get a burning cycle out of the circus tent. Happens to all of us, right? We've all been there. On her deathbed, she makes him promise not to drive in the show, but... He, he keeps practicing in secret while his dad and sister girlfriend, who we'll get into in a minute, just think he's a coward who refuses to race anymore. <laughs> he's discovered by his adopted sister, who he promptly starts making out with. This is, by the way, the first time there was any romantic angle whatsoever to any part of their relationship. She grew up with this girl, and I get it. He's adopted. Her name's and Rocky. No, he wasn't really adopted, though, I don't think. Yeah, I think he was just raised like a son. sort of took him into the family. But in, in the circus way. In a circus way, like, but circus not legally. Well, yeah, so it's cool know. if you're in the circus is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying, yeah. yeah. Then you ain't related. adopted dad gets diagnosed with the disease. I love that. That's my favorite thing in the whole book. I mean, it's got to be cancer, right? Why don't it's they, cancer. Why of course don't they just cancer. say cancer? Was cancer? I don't like, know. They can say Satan, but they can't say cancer. Right. I don't was know. cancer trademarked? What is going on? Maybe they didn't want to have to, like, they were like, parent, they didn't want to have to explain it to kids. I don't know. Could be. So it's adopted. <laughs> I, honestly, I don't know. His adopted dad, Crash Simpson, is told he only has a month to live. So, of course, Johnny hosts a one-man satanic ritual and offers his soul in service to the devil in return for curing Crash. Of course, Crash doesn't know he's cured, attempts a suicidal jump because, screw it, man, what do I got to live for, and dies in front of a sold-out crowd at Madison Square Gardens. Blaze goes nuts, and instead of crying over the corpse or, you know, doing something about it laying there, he grabs a motorcycle and jump, does the same jump, and makes it. <laughs> he's like, don't let the crowd leave. Right. Let them stare at the dead body right. for a few minutes. <laughs> Which is an interesting choice. He's, yeah, yeah. At that point, sister girlfriend goes nuts and heads to Blaze's dressing room where he's currently filing a complaint with Satan. <laughs> but he's like, what the hell, dude? You told me you were going to cure. He's like, I didn't tell you you'd be fine. I just said no cancer. Wah, 
I'm the devil, and now you're Ghost Rider. Smoke it. But Rocky knows exactly how to chase off the devil because she secretly read all of Johnny's satanic books. Yeah. Which brings me to my next point. Okay. <laughs> now, we had a discussion about this last night, we so had let's a get discussion. into it. Johnny can't tell Rocky. He's the Ghost Rider, of course. So he hits the road, becomes the Ghost Rider, and the rest is history. I would argue this makes Johnny a full-fledged Satan worshiper. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't worship Satan. Really? He doesn't worship Satan. Okay, Joe, it's one thing to learn about Satan, to be like, I want to learn about this because I'm cautious. Like, Satan's a scary guy. It's yeah, another thing right? to learn how to summon Satan to give yourself to Satan. <laughs> yes. I mean, you're not wrong, but I'm saying, like, worship means you view him as a deity. I and get it. I, like, that's not work. Like, making a deal in exchange for goods and services is not worship. I agree. Making a deal for goods and services, the devil shows up at your time of need, and you're like, oh, man, yeah. I, I need help. I, Sometimes I, the devil shows you up the even devil? when you don't ask for him. I'm confused. Could you be the devil? I don't know. All I know is, please say my dad. That's not what happens. He has no, a satanic ritual with a pentagram and a skull and everything. That Look, insinuates man, that he practiced. You don't get that right your first time. Uh, Come on. <laughs> I, and like I said last night, that's why he ended up summoning Mephisto and not saying. Oh, please. Mike Plug is absolutely amazing. Uh, I love it art. so much. He, it's so good. He packs the issue full of skulls and hellfire and bright colors. There's this great Kirby-esque transformation panel where we see him go from Ghost Rider to Johnny with like flashing lights behind him. I love Plug's depiction of satanic ritual. It's fantastic. It is crazy to think that Marvel put this book out and basically made a hero out of a Satan worshiper. But the 70s was a wild time, man. Not a Satan worshiper. I he hates Satan. love the Marvel devil here, and he perfectly screws Johnny over. I am giving this a massive buy it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this comic is great. So, um, there used to, Marvel used to put out these things called like, um, the official index to whatever yeah. title. Right. And it's just, and, and it, it's sort of like the Marvel handbook, except it's just like, here's a list of issues of a series, a brief synopsis, a list of the characters, right. notable, like notable happenings. Uh, like it's very dry reference material. I found like kind of a, a tabloid sized thick index. It wasn't put out by Marvel. It was a, a complete index of the X-Men from the beginning up to the present at the time, at the time of publication. And then also for some reason, the entire Ghost Rider series. Sure. <laughs> and so, well, you know, they had to pad it out. Yeah. And, and so like I, it was two bucks. I snagged it. I was like, Heck, yeah, I don't know anything about the X-Men. I'll let me check this out. And I'm looking over this thing. And like once Ghost Rider gets his own book, like the first out of the first 10 issues, like four or five of them have like full on Satan yeah. horns and cape and pay, like on the cover. No question. And his name. Prominently it, like, it's Satan. It's like I'm and, like, Satan. Son of yeah. Satan was coming out at the same time, and like yeah, yeah Satana true. was also there. They were like, we're gonna make some Satan money, guys. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's so strange to me that that like Marvel was. I like, love it. But yeah, no, this this comic is so much fun. Uh, it's so bizarre. Gary Friedrich's script. God bless the guy. It it, it is. It's just like 
declaration after declaration. Like when I got to the scene where Crash Simpson tells Johnny and his family that he's got cancer and he goes, I got the disease. <laughs> I set my iPad down and I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. And I was just like, what is going on? Yeah. You can't mention um, cancer or what? Or is it yeah, something it's, it's really like, gnarly? It, uh, <laughs> and you know what? And I wish, like, I wish Marvel had done better by Gary Friedrich. I, he fought tooth and nail to get credit for, for creating Ghost Rider. Yeah. But like this comic is great. Mike Plug is amazing. Uh, this is a buy it for me. This was so fun. I've never actually read this Ghost Rider story. I've only read issues from his series. This is the first time so I've read this. Too. This was the first for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was awesome. From health and wellness to fame and fortune, it's Soul Searchers and Company. Number six from Claypool Comics from 1994. Sorry, that's a typo. It should be 1994. It doesn't matter. It's written by Peter David with art by Amanda Connor. Here is your uh, synopsis. How will the Soul Searchers turn around the fortunes of their struggling company? More efficiency? Greater cost effectiveness? Nah. What they need is a great promo campaign to convince prospective customers that Soul Searchers and Co. is hot. After all, isn't image everything? <laughs> That's Yo. a pun, Yo. and we'll get into it in a minute. When I was a much younger man in my late teens and early 20s, I was obsessed with writer Peter David. This was in part thanks to my love of his, at the time, current run on The Incredible Hulk, but also due to my exposure to his writing for the Comics Buyer's Guide, CBG was the longest-running periodical reporting on the comic book industry. It ran from 1975 to 2013. Oh, damn. That's, really? I know. <laughs> yeah. That seems entirely uh, too long. <laughs> uh, for, uh, at the very end, it went from, like, being a large-format newspaper to, like, a wizard-sized magazine, yeah, and then it folded. I remember that. Uh for the bulk of those years, though, it came out every single week. It featured industry news, cartoons, editorials, columns, all the things you'd find in a civilian newspaper. It could be a bit dry. It certainly wasn't flashy, but it was for hardcore students of the industry. One of the columns that was featured weekly was called But I Digress, written by, you guessed it, Peter David. hey -o. Uh, I was gifted a stack of CBG papers by my friend Gary Peterson, which led to me purchasing a collected edition of But I Digress columns, uh, which the, fa the fact that it even exists is a, a complete stunner to me. Uh, and I read that thing until the pages fell out. You might say I was a fan, which is a long-winded way of saying that I didn't stop at Peter David's Marvel and DC work. I scoured the earth for everything I could find with his name on it including a very obscure title from an even more obscure publisher called Soul Searchers and Company. Soul Searchers, Inc. was a team of misfit, quote-unquote, psychic investigators. You had Bridget Lockridge, who was a former Olympic athlete with a magic pole, like, it's magic, I guess, <laughs> and a messy personal history. Baraka, a horny fire demon from the Arabic hell. Not that kind of horny. You know, the other kind. Hey Kelly Hollister, who was an airheaded teenage witch in training. Arnold Q. Stanley, founder of the Soul Searchers and, for some unknown reason, stuck in the shape of a prairie dog. Uh, wearing a tie, by the way, which is great. Peter P. Peterson, who is a prissy financial consultant with a bag that packs itself. It's kind of like a bag of holding. And 
Janos, a.k.a. Creature Feature, a teenager who has the slightly uncontrollable ability to turn into monsters. They were based in Mystic Grove, Connecticut, which was kind of like being in the hometown where Sabrina the Teenage Witch lives. They attempted to make their business profitable, but often ended up working pro bono. Just, in this issue, real quick, the before you go on, yeah. I just want to set up what I'm going to talk about because you know about this and just laid it all out very well. I yeah. knew none of this going into it. Oh, no, it's true. It's, it's true. It, yeah, I just 100%. Wanna, I'm, just, I'm just getting you ready. <laughs> I, I hear you 100%. Uh, in this issue, the soul searchers are visited by a devilish trickster named Mr. Veneer who offers to turn them into superstars. The offer is too good to be true, of course, and the team comes very close to signing away their eternal souls. Veneer grants them their heart's desire, which at the time meant becoming a very obvious parody of image comics from the early 90s. No one is safe, not Todd McFarlane, who David was feuding with at the time, not Mark Silvestri, not Rob Leifeld, nobody. I forgot about that fight. It's true. That's right. Uh, the team becomes a group of busty, armor-wearing, gun-toting, poorly dialogued caricatures that mimicked the worst of Image's early excesses. Additionally, David packs this thing f- so full of industry inside jokes, not just jokes about comic book content, like, there's a joke about dialing in to kill Robin. Right. No. Like, Joey Buttafuoco, he's funny, right? Hey! You know, like, okay. <laughs> well, but I mean, like, that was that was the 90s, right? Yeah. Peter, David Letterman was constantly making David Buttafuoco jokes. But, like, this is inside baseball at its insidiest, which leads to background gags like the founders of Fantagraphics showing up as Beavis and Butthead in the background of a panel. Jabs at retailers that ordered too many image comic books and other jokes that are just hilarious if you made your living selling or promoting comic books in 1994. The only reason I was even able to identify any of that stuff is that I read his book. The only reason I was even able to identify any of that stuff is that I read this book for the first time when it was fairly new. It was maybe 1998 or 9 when I first got a hold of it. And I was a regular reader of David's column, so I was well aware of all of his very strongly held opinions at the time. Uh, Fun fact for those that don't know, Peter David got his start in the industry as uh, part of the sales staff for Marvel Comics. So he worked for the department like helping to get the books out to retailers and, and newsstands and stuff. So he had a lot of opinions. Some of the parody works, like there's a couple of pages we get skewering Frank Miller's Sin City, a scene where one of the characters goes home to her family and they are basically Cyberforce, which I thought was hilarious. And Baraka transforming into hot blood. That's capital H, capital O, capital T, capital T, blood. A character that is so plausible, he might actually have existed. And they never even bothered to explain what the acronym stands for, which is the icing on the cake. But for the most part, it's a very dense and completely unrelatable collection of references to anybody that wasn't there at the time. That said... The art by Amanda Connor is excellent. I always forget to include Amanda Connor with other artists that have been around forever, but she has been. It's 1994. We're talking 28 years. Yeah. Amanda Connor has been rocking it. I had her on my top and, five female creators. You did not. Just saying. I'm, well, look, I had to I, I had to narrow it to five, uh-huh. and most of mine were like big time editors. 
her work is just so youthful and fun that it stands apart from both her contemporaries at the time and even today. And she's only gotten better with time. This is obviously the work of a much younger artist still honing her craft, but the style is unmistakably hers and it's really impressive. Her designs of the image parody versions are spot on. Soul Searchers and Company is a odd line item on Peter David's resume, and issue six may be the oddest one of the bunch. It's fun with an asterisk next to it. Uh, It's an interesting artifact of its time, but a lot of it, I would say the majority of it relies on a ton of insider knowledge from nearly three decades ago to work. I'm giving this a skim it. It can't be more than a skim. I got the same exact vibes that I did when we were doing that ambush bug book recently. Except ambush bug was for the eighties. Right. It was the same thing. Like this book is literally written for my 24, you know, person group of friends that have a similar job or background that I did in the comics industry and understand every single one of my references. I did not (laughs) like I got some of them, the big ones I could pick up on. I picked up, they were making fun of image and stuff like that. I did not have any background about these characters. So they kept naming this one character. I can't even say his name, like Janox or Janzok. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, no, that's like Janosh. his real name. Okay. And yeah. like, he was a naked guy and then he was a, a winged monster. And I was like, uh, I did not understand what was happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you pair all this extremely like time bottled humor (laughs) it's based around the comics industry into one issue and it just becomes too much it's just too much and i i couldn't handle it i'm gonna skim it because it's clever i see him working amanda connor's great even when she was young she was great i love her so much but this is not anything i need to revisit again and it's oh no it's it's too clever for its own good like I'll, I will say this. Like uh, on its own, completely removed from context, it's it's hard. But the other Soul Searchers issues in the trade that I had, like they're fun. They're fun and I'm good. Sure. Peter I'm David sure. and Amanda Connor, and you know, I, I, this probably would have killed if you had your finger on the pulse of the comic book industry I'm in nineteen ninety four. Sure, it did. <laughs> but it's two thousand twenty two. Yeah, and yeah, so. Todd McFarlane must have heard us saying his name, Joe, because we're talking about Spawn, number one, from Image, 1993. This was written and drawn by The Todd. Here's your setup. Al Simmons was some kind of soldier that got famous for saving the president from an assassination attempt and went on to fight for freedom with ridiculous-looking guns until he was killed in action. His love for his wife, Wanda, was so strong, he screamed out into the darkness for someone to help him come back to life, and his pleas were answered by Satan, sorry, Malbolgia. (laughs) (laughs) Al spends most of the issue trying to put his shattered memories back together while doing a lot of crying and being shocked by his burnt skin, but 
not by his weird costume and living chains. That didn't seem to bother him at all, especially when he was beating up rapists. He knows he's mad. He knows a devil figure screwed him over and gave him a snazzy outfit with the longest cape in history. He knows he came back from the dead to be with this woman in his memories, but he has no idea who he or she is. I have talked a good amount of trash about Todd on this show, but back in 1993, young Matt was getting ready to graduate from high school and Spawn melted his brain. Spawn number one was one of the first image titles and McFarlane was just coming off his legendary Spider-Man run. While there's no knotted up webbing here, there's plenty of chains and cape action, don't worry. I did forget how whiny Al is. Don't get me wrong. He got a raw deal. Sucks for sure. But I'm pretty sure I didn't jump off this book until well into the 60s and Al never stopped crying. (laughs) As far as first issues go, I got to admit, this was better than I remember. McFarlane's art is full Todd at this point. His writing is definitely better than some of the other inaugural image crew, but I can't get behind his devil design. It's just silly. It kind of looks like a devil created by Jim Henson for a scary episode of Fraggle Rock. Spawn is what Spawn is. The fact that it is around 300 some issues later and still selling like hotcakes blows my mind. But some people I mean, there's love an it. entire there's a, imprint of Spawn. There's a Spawn now. universe out there. Yeah. I went into this with full intention of smashing it and saying, come on, Todd, you you thought you were so hot. I was wrong. This is not that bad. It's also not great. I'm giving it a skim it. (laughs) You know, okay. All right. I'm kind of torn here because I was in the same boat. I was expecting to come out of this going, this is just terrible, but it's not. And so I wanted to lean more towards the buy it direction because it's like, Oh, I was pleasantly surprised. But now that I'm thinking about it again and looking back at it, like it's not, it's nothing groundbreaking. No, Um, there's that. That's just it. Like there was never anything about spawn that was like, Oh my God. You know, like the character in life was literally a GI Joe. They never tell us what he actually did. He was, I mean, he's a mercenary. I'm a special forces. Something with science lasers. (laughs) Yeah. He was a, he was a soldier that became a mercenary. In fact, I don't think he just saved the president. I think he specifically saved Ronald Reagan because they mentioned Hinckley. Oh, I don't the Hinkley incident. Maybe. I don't know. I think the implication is that like Al was trotted around as some sort of conservative hero. I don't know. But anyway, they they do later on kind of go into the fact that the military used him as well. And he was a chess piece in life. So I don't think Todd was like, I don't think he was there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to imply anything about Todd's politics because I certainly don't know them. Um, But like, it's just kind of odd that they very specifically mention like Hinckley and right. the Republican national. It's just like, Oh weird. Okay. But like, he's also so very clearly aping like Frank Miller. Right. Where it's just like panels and panels of the character, like lamenting his own existence. And then suddenly an entire page of texts, a text from talking heads on a TV screen. It's like, this is the dark Knight returns. Yeah, absolutely. This is like, this is literally like the dark Knight returns. It's all lifted. All of this is lifted. No question. And and the art is very good. Like this is Todd, obviously Todd McFarlane where he was at, he's at the 
He's the toddiest he's ever been. Oh, yeah. And um, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous to look at. Male Bolgia does look weird. It's stupid. It's, kind of, it's, it's such it's a dumb. bad design. Like, why does he have why, do, why does he have like a weird old lady mullet? Like, right? I don't get it. And he's but fat as hell. What the? He's what very. Like, yeah, he's got a big doing? old. He's got a big old gut and very like skinny claw arms. It's yeah, it's weird. But I mean, I get why people liked this. You know, like I can't say that I hated it. I read it and I was like, oh, you know what? That was better than I was expecting. I immediately uh, read Wildcats number one, Cyberforce number one, and Youngblood number one after this because I was just like, boy. I just got to see. I just got to see. This is easily the best of that group. No question. Well, Savage Dragon, I think, is probably the best. I did not read Savage Dragon number one, but yeah, but I I was also not a Savage Dragon fan. So I think Savage Dragon has for a long time been the the strongest of the of the ones done by the original creators. But like Todd and even Jim Lee would get like Alan Moore. Sure. uh, At at certain points. So it's like, yeah, I guess whatever, Uh, like say what you will. But people paid attention to spawn. Uh, This is a skim it. It's 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 way better than I gave it credit for. Let's jump back to the Marvel Universe with Black Panther number five. This is from, as I said, Marvel Comics. 1999 was the year. It's written by Christopher Priest with art by Vince Evans and Brian Haberlin. Now, let me just ask, are you sure you don't want to make a joke? about a priest writing about Satan. Come on, it's right there. It's right there, dude. <laughs> uh, well, not only is he a priest writing about Satan, but he's also a minister. Yes, so. that's what I'm saying. It's all right there. <laughs> yeah, you know. Here is your solicit. I don't know. It's uh, it's from Marvel.com. Mephisto takes Black Panther and Everett Ross to hell. The demon exploits T'Challa's vulnerability to the Wakandan people. Will Mephisto burn Panther to a crisp with mind games? This issue ends the first arc of what quickly became one of my favorite comic book runs of all time. Christopher Priest's Black Panther redefined the character for the modern era and still serves as a blueprint for his appearance in modern comics and other media, most notably the Black Panther film starring Chadwick Boseman. 100%. In this arc, the king of Wakanda has traveled to America to investigate the death of a young girl uh, that happened in some property he's connected to. Something like that. It's not important at this point. The investigation quickly uncovers an attempted coup by a religious zealot powered by Mephisto himself and a mysterious third party pulling the strings. Now T'Challa is face to face with the devil and has to get him to back down and release his hold on Wakanda by any means necessary, even if that means making a deal. This is an amazing piece of writing from Priest, full of his trademark quirks that I love so much, like the Pulp Fiction style scene breaks with the title cards at the beginning connections to his work from Marvel comics past uh, Sergeant Torque shows up from power man and iron fist from like the early eighties and a modern retelling of the origin of Wakanda and the black Panther clan. It's fun to revisit Everett Ross as he was originally intended a neurotic Michael J. Fox spin city clone working as a lawyer and handler to T'Challa and his entourage. Uh, little did he know that it would lead to him wearing the devil's pants and playing host to a cosmic demon while he waited for his client to show up and save the day. I understand why Fox couldn't play Ross in the movie, so it was really nice to see this version of the character again. This issue is a nonstop journey through the past of Wakanda, the history of the Panther Clan, the death of T'Challa's father, and the birth of the villain Ulysses Claw. 
Oh, and T'Challa's own ascension to the throne and the role of Black Panther himself. But it's never dry. It's told as a disjointed uh, recounting of events from Everett Ross to his boss. And when it seamlessly transitions from flashback to the present day, uh, in fact, they were one and the same all along. It is a great moment. Mephisto's illusion is thwarted by T'Challa, which leads to his utter defeat of the Demon Lord in a very satisfying way. Do you remember how Grant Morrison's Batman had the reputation of being the character that could beat anyone if only he had enough time to prepare in advance? Well, that's Christopher Priest's Black Panther, except he's always been prepared for everything. Mephisto never stood a chance, and that is one of the great joys of this story arc. It's funny when Mephisto gives Everett Ross pants that he keeps trying to take off to no avail. <laughs> it's funny when T'Challa tears out Mephisto's heart and puts it in the jar in the fridge and then Zuri later eats it like a snack. <laughs> it's not that Mephisto is portrayed as a joke. It's that Wakandans are completely and utterly unimpressed. And we are not talking like the greasy, like, sexy, smarmy, long-haired loincloth Mephisto. This is the scary, monster-dog-faced, brillo-headed, capital-D demon Mephisto, and he is nothing but an annoyance to the Black Panther. It is so great. The art by Vince Evans is very, very good, and it's made even better by Brian Haberlin's lushly painted colors. This whole... Uh, The first, I would say, I want to say it's like 10 issues, maybe. It's the first two arcs for sure of the Black Panther are beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful comics. They're all painted like old Richard Corbin, like 70s heavy metal. A little bit. Yeah. Um, Like. Uh, like I think the f- the first several issues are are done are painted like actually fully painted by yeah. Mark Texiera. I was already digging Priest's Black Panther run, but the conclusion of the first arc with this issue helped solidify my love of a character that I really had little exposure to at the time. Like if, if you look back at Black Panther in 1999, he was practically nobody. No, the Black the, Panther the, showed up to be a shithead, and that was about it. He was like Namor. I, I mean, he was just like Namor, where it was but, like, you know, but like Namor had his own book at least off and on. Like uh, the last time Black Panther had his own comic was like the eighties. I guess in the sense of the character, <clears throat> like every time Namor around, it was like, oh great, Namor's here and he's a total jerk. Like yeah. it's like I'm mad because what you're doing, Atlantis, and Black Panther would show up and be like, I'm mad because what's going on in Wakanda. <laughs> like, okay, uh, but, that was it. Yeah, though. but like this, this skyrocketed Black Panther. Uh, to the top of the heap of yeah. Marvel heroes for me. Huge buy it. I love this comic. Yeah, this run is the best run of Black Panther and what I would argue the most important run of Black Panther if you want to read this character. And it's because, I'm glad you brought up Grant Morrison, just where Christopher Priest positioned the character and did it in a way where it's not like a macho thing. It's not like he's, he's just so bad at... No, he's the smartest guy in the room and he knows it. But it's not just him. The entire populace that works with him, like trusts their Panther God, respects him. And when he does face down Mephisto, he's like, look, we've had this thing all along. Mephisto was like, no, you didn't. I would know about it. And he was like, you did know about it. You just dismissed us like the rest of the world dismisses us. Guess what? You f***ed up, you know? (laughs) And it's it's a great moment, you know? Yeah, and it's really awesome. This book is just packed full of those. I love this run. It is a massive buy it. The art is gorgeous. And Black Panther's in a very, Black Panther is in the place that he is today 
because of this run. So if you like Black Panther, if you like the movies, if you like what you're reading currently, which is excellent, don't get me wrong, love the new one, go back and read this run. You will love it. Absolutely. 100%. You know, Joe, not all devils are scary. Some of them are actually pretty good looking and buff and blonde. Yeah. yeah. Totally gnarly looking. Let's talk about Underworld Unleashed. Book one from DC. The year was 1995. This was written by Mark Wade with pencils by Howard Porter and inks by Dan Green. I don't normally name inkers, but we're going to talk about that in a minute here. Underworld Unleashed was DC's big event to end 95 with a bang, and it starred their very own devil, Neron. Now, unlike Marvel's Satan stand-in, Mephisto, DC chose to play it safe and go full superhero look with their green-clad, blonde-haired, green-fire-shooting pro-wrestler devil. There's really nothing demonic about Neron at all, other than maybe his attitude, but DC leans heavily into the devil theme here with pentagrams, mentions of the number of the beast, quoting passages from the Bible, what the whole devil shebang is here, except for anything that looks like the devil. <laughs> it's weird, though, it's because so I, weird. you know what? I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait and I will rebut. But yeah, let's go. But yeah, they made a choice. They obviously did. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, I, don't, like, I don't. We I don't, don't want to upset parents shying away. We don't want to be scary. We're going full Satan. But if they look at it, they're gonna be like, well, that's not Satan. <laughs> you know? no. In this event, Neron shows up offering to fulfill the fantasies of the villains of the DCU. I'm guessing there's a zero issue where we saw him enlist Cadabra, Cersei, Lex. Lex Luthor, the Joker, and Polaris. There isn't. Nope. It's just, it just, that already happened when we get here? Underworld Unleashed is three issues. No kidding. It's three, it's three issues and like two dozen tie-ins. I guess I thought I missed something. I don't know. I I mean, the bulk of, the bulk of like the story, which is the empowerment of the villains happens in the respective books. Okay. All right. Gotcha. So, Lex Luthor, for example, like you might see Lex Luthor. Like I remember very distinctly, there was there used to be a series. Um, uh, there was a series that came out quarterly called Superman: Man of Tomorrow. Okay, that filled in on the skip weeks uh, for Superman, so it came out every single week. And I remember very distinctly in that issue, the old and decrepit, uh, failing clone body that Lex had put himself into. Right, it had cancer, he, and he was dying. Yeah. Well, remember, like he po- he poses his own son. Pardon blah, me. Blah, blah. He had the disease. <laughs> he had the right. He had the disease. Uh, so, like he, had, you know, he poses his own son. The whole deal. Uh, that body was breaking down, and okay. uh, it, so it had clone cancer. I guess. Gotcha. And um, at the end of one issue, there is like a flash of light from Lex Luthor's quarters in his like yacht on his yacht, and when he comes out of the room. Or somebody goes into the room to make sure he's okay, and he is, like, buff, handsome, bald, like, golden god-looking, like like he is in this comic. Right, right, right. So, like, Neron is like, I want your soul. I'll heal your cancer and make you look totally bitchin'. And he's like, I don't believe in a soul. Go ahead and take it. Yeah, like, Cersei gets really powerful. Uh, Yeah. Polaris, who's a dude with a purple outfit and the dumbest helmet you've ever seen he's a magnetic guy all he wanted to be is not crazy i don't want to be schizophrenic anymore and he was like sure but i do want to be evil (laughs) keep that it's true yeah (laughs) and the joker asked for uh, a cuban cigar that's all he wanted 
So, you know, that's kind of fun. <laughs> He's crazy. Yeah. Neron first uses the rogues to kick off five terrorist bombings, which Blue Devil notices forms a pentagram on the earth while he's watching from the JLA watchtower. By the way, this JLA lineup. Woof. <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is actually pre-watchtower, so it is the JLA satellite. Oh, gotcha. Uh, that okay. crashes in JLA number one. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so it's like Nuclo with the it, it, the the future Atom Smasher with yeah. the big red mohawk. A lot of yeah. sea listers here. <laughs> yeah, it's from bad, there, bad, bad. From there, Neron tempts several Belrev prison guards and inmates into unknowingly causing a massive breakout. Meanwhile, the trickster is getting wise to Neron's schemes. I love Howard Porter's art. His work with Grant Morrison is still some of my absolutely favorite Justice League comics ever. This does not look like the same Howard Porter to me. It's different, and I'm guessing it's Dan Green's inks that make the difference, but there is one panel, exactly one panel, that's showing off all the villains with their new powers and suits. That is 100% Howard Porter. No question. Uh, well, two things. Uh, this is a full year prior to the launch of JLA. Right. He had a year to evolve, and I believe the inker on his run on JLA is John Dell. Okay, makes sense. I think maybe he just inked himself on that one panel or something, and it just looks cleaner. Oh, Cheetah with Cheetah jumping at the yeah, camera? Yeah, I think it's in the faces. Uh, like, it's unmistakably Howard Porter in all of the faces. Yeah, but it's also but inked it could differently. Be the, the difference of the inks could be making it making it look different to you. Yeah, like, uh, like not right. terrible. We'll, we'll, or anything. we'll have to agree to disagree on that, because I think it looks like Howard Porter. Howard Porter is such a unique artist. Right, I see his style there. I just think that, that like, one, I definitely absolutely see him all the way through this That book. one panel just definitely jumped out to me, and I don't know what it's yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's fine. The story is fun, and as lame as Neron is... He, and he is super lame, as far as comic book devils go, the plan to power up all the villains in exchange for their soul, it's great. Lex had cancer, got cured, Blockbuster was given intelligence. I didn't realize that Blockbuster was a completely different character before this. And the Blockbuster that we get yeah. in the Nightwing book that I love so much, like, is this character powered up by Neron? I had no idea. He was sort of like a Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Um, except that something happened to him and he lost his intelligence. He was and dumb. He was yeah. more like a shambling Hulk for a while. Even Helgramite shows up and gets a power up, but I think they just kind of like take him from his larval phase and make him a full on fly. Because <laughs> like, all of a sudden he's got wings and stuff and he's like, ah. <laughs> well, Killer Moth is also one of them that gets enhanced. And, he, and, and, and that Killer may have been Moth Killer Moth. Helgr Killer Moth and Helgramite, once they both become monsters, are just like. Yeah, just like fly know. monsters or whatever. I have never read Underworld Unleashed, but I have to do it now. If for no other reason than to see what happens to my boy Blue Devil, I'm giving this a buy it. Uh, yeah. OK, so a couple of things. I don't think Neron is lame. Uh, I understand where you're coming from, uh, from your deep abiding love of Satan, uh, that you like this whole green blonde cape wearing dude offends you. I mean, you got to admit there's things you expect when you think of the devil. And, and it is there not, are all sorts of comic book demons, and Satan not, is not the only one. I get it, but Ravishing Rick Rude does, also does not come to my mind. <laughs> you know? Look, sometimes, sometimes the... Here's something to consider. Satan, the biblical devil, was, uh, Lucifer, if you will, 
was the most beautiful of all the angels. Sure, I get that. And like, so I, like he comes to you as a beautiful, gorgeous man, not like a scary looking horned monster. I suppose. But neurons always look like this and never change forms. Right. Well, I mean, maybe he doesn't like why does he have to sometimes look ugly? Why doesn't he? Maybe he likes to take care of Neron. Sure. Maybe he likes to pamper himself sometimes. Yeah, no, he's a gym rat. You, you can know, tell. He's Guys, well-groomed. That dude he never skips ripped. leg day. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> cut. Uh, so, like, DC's definitely... DC definitely is making made a choice with Neron. Um, I don't know if it was... I, I certainly don't know if it was to, like, head off any satanic panic at the past because we're talking mid 90s yeah, here nobody gave a five at this point that's and nobody like, cared we already aries. had spawn aries was around and aries was scary as hell he had like the helmet and the red eyes and the horns you know like aries was freaking scarier than neuron so yeah so um i think maybe uh in part it was to distinguish uh neuron from mephisto because it, it's uh, aside from the blonde and the cape there's also this if you look at Underworld Unleashed, it also looks unlike any other comic at the time because it's got this neon. Sure. Coloring. And to be and fair, I had just not an accident. I started reading DC Comics probably a year after this came out. So I was so like when this was a huge hit and they were like, get Howard Porter on Justice League and, you know, get uh, Nolan on Batman and get like these new artists and make and make it look sexier and flat. That's just what I thought. Well, this is the DC house style. This is what it looks like. Right. I just yeah. wasn't around before this. Sure. Uh, but I mean, like specifically the the coloring, the green, uh, the, the brightest of the greens. And also um, there's this kind of like flashy magenta. Like those are not co colors typically found in comics. No, they bought um, some technology and they're showing it off. <laughs> no and, question. And so like this comic, this comic book has a specific aesthetic to it. Um, that kind of sets it apart. Um, I love Underworld Unleashed. I think it's great. Um, I, I, uh, the, f the first scene with the rogues I thought was heartbreaking. Oh, it's great. But, um, great. I, I know, I know what happens to the rogues after this, uh, Mark Wade, uh, you know, Mark Wade always has he a plan. He takes care of them. Yeah. Yeah. So don't worry about it. I, I love Underworld Unleashed. I think it's one of DC's most underrated events. I think that, uh, like the fact that it's only the main series is only three issues is wild to yeah. me. And they're three great issues. The tie-ins are all great. You don't have to be reading Underworld Unleashed to appreciate the tie-ins. You don't have to read the tie-ins to appreciate Underworld Unleashed. It's like the perfect event. Yeah. I love it. This is a huge buy it. Well, I love Underworld Unleashed. We need to keep in mind that they were competing heavily with Image at the time, too. So they were going for big slam bang, like sexy, bright looking stuff, you know, to stand out. And Underworld Unleashed, it was a huge seller. It, I'm not saying it saved him at the time, but definitely was a win for him. I mean, him. It's, it, it stood out on the stands. I'll, I'll say that for sure. Well, it had to happen. The next review is of Batman number 666. I think this is the only 666 issue out there, right? Was, it, was there a Superman 666 or did they take a break and come back? No, I mean, they're not architects, man. They don't skip the 13th floor. Yeah, there was a 666. Marvel skips that shit all the time. You kidding me? <laughs> no, they don't. I mean, not on purpose. They just don't let titles get that high. Fair enough. Uh, this is by Grant Morrison with art by Andy Kubert. Here's your solicit. Meet Damian Wayne, the Batman of tomorrow, in this special issue set 15 years from now in a nightmarish future Gotham. 
In a world torn apart by terrorism, plagues, rogue weather, and bizarre supercrime, only 24 hours are left before the climactic Battle of Armageddon, and only one man who might be able to stop it, but will he? The Son of the Bat meets the Prince of Darkness, and the stage is set for the ultimate battle between evil and moral ambiguity. Can Damien make peace with his heritage to save the world? Find out in Batman 666, Numbers of the Beast. Graham Morrison ain't gonna give you no good versus evil. No way. (laughs) This is Graham Morrison we're talking about. Knee deep into Grant Morrison's Batman run, it's Batman 666. And as the solicit states, this issue fast forwards a nebulous 15 years into the future to a grown Damian Wayne who inherited his father's identity after his death. Gotham City is an even bigger nightmare than it was in the past, with villains running amok, some familiar, some new, all of them disturbing. But there's an even worse threat wandering around killing people in Batman's name. The thing is, as brutal as he is, Batman doesn't kill. Until he does, but that's neither here nor there. Damien is wanted by the police because Commissioner Barbara Gordon thinks he killed a quote-unquote friend of hers. Nightwing, maybe? Probably. We never know. Gotta be. We're thrown into the deep end here, and we get a glimpse of Damien's life both in and out of the cowl. Surprise, it's all Batman all the time, and if he has a personal life at all, it's practically non-existent. He does have a cat named Alfred, though, which is nice. And a pretty sweet penthouse apartment in Wayne Tower. Throughout Morrison's story, we learn that Damien was even more obsessed with preparation than his father was, a fact that plays out to great satisfaction at the end of the issue. Morrison's script is quick-witted and full of their usual wild ideas and characters' insane ramblings. We also get a brief appearance by Jackanapes, the gorilla henchman that took the internet by storm some years ago. Well, I forgot all about Jackanapes. While we never learned the true identity of the false Batman in this issue, everything Morrison did during their run was connected, so expect themes to carry through later. What we do learn is that the dragon, as uh, he is called, the dragon's servant isn't the only one who made an infernal pact. After his dad died, Damien sold his soul at age 14 in exchange for Gotham's protection, which makes him practically unstoppable. The issue ends with Damien canceling the apocalypse a full six years before Idris Elba would declare it in Pacific Rim. (laughs) Speaking of unstoppable, this issue's gorgeous art comes courtesy of Andy Kubert and inker Jesse Delperdang, a powerhouse duo I first saw working together on Marvel's Kazar reboot in the late 90s. They are a great team. It's beautiful. Batman 666 is an outstanding one-shot story that gives us a glimpse into Damien's possible future by some of the best creators in the business. We never actually see Damien's deal with the devil or whomever, or we never even see the devil at all, but you know he's there. He's got his creepy little fingers and everything, and Damien is not going to take it lightly. This is a buy it. Well, so you're right. They never show the devil, and there is a chance that Maybe that didn't even happen because this is Grant Morrison we're talking about. But there is a character that does believe he sold his soul to the devil. Yeah. And that character does walk on water at one point. And like, Damien takes a chest full of bullets and does walks away. some devil stuff. But oh, but this is Damien. Maybe he's bulletproof. We don't know. He's also willing to lie and willing to cheat. And he admits it in this. So it's Grant Morrison, like Grant Morrison singing 
us. <laughs> like, so when Damien said, when this guy is like, I sold my soul to the devil to rule Gotham, da da da, and Damien's like, Yeah, I did it first. You know, he could be lying. He's Damien. He's that yeah, good. I, I mean, know? I see. I, I, I love this. It. Is this is why I took it at face value? Because the guy was surprised that he was being able that Damien was able to defeat him, right? Because he thought he had the power. Yeah. And Damon was like, not only uh, did I also make a deal with your boss, but I made a deal for Gotham's protection and you can't bring that shit here. But then he also promptly says, I'm not afraid to cheat. And I booby trapped every major building yeah, in but Gotham. Then, but then he kills a guy that thinks he can't be killed and then gets shot in the chest five times and walks away. I don't disagree. So, We've seen Batman get shot plenty of times, too. I'm just saying we don't know. It's never explicitly spelled out. I love it. Either way, this move, this whole issue is like nonstop speed metal Batman. It's violent. It's dark. It is not Bruce Wayne. It is what if Damien becomes Batman. And if that happens, it is scary as hell. So scary that I like to believe like, nope, this is just Damien being Damien, baby. <laughs> like That guy's bad news. This is one of the highest points of that Morrison Batman run for me because it was just a standalone story. It wasn't even a year into the run. Yeah. That's what's so funny about it. It's just a standalone story. It was issue 666. He wanted to do something ridiculous and scary and terrifying, and it works. And he does it by setting up a character that believes he sold his soul to the devil with a character who says he sold his soul to the devil. So we don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Huge buy uh, it. The, the strength of Damien as a character is apparent considering that the character as we know him was only like eight months old. Yeah. At the time. And this comic still rules. It rules. It's so great. Yeah, because it, like it, Damien was a kid and a lot of people are like, ugh, I do not want, he's 10. This doesn't even make sense. Who cares? Whatever. And then it was like, all right, here he is 15 years in the future. He's terrifying. And we went, oh, <laughs> when we came back, we were like, oh man. <laughs> Let's move from the gleaming towers of Gotham City to the old Civil War South with Fables number 11 from DC Vertigo. This is written by Bill Willingham with art by Brian Talbot. Here's your setup. Jack Horner, who is the living personification of tricksters and star of such fables, Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack and Jill, Jack Bean Nimble, and other Jacks, finds himself on the wrong side of the Civil War, impersonating a Southern War hero, of course, to impress rich women. Little did Jack know the South would be on the losing end, so now that he's lied his way to his captain's position, it's time to go AWOL before his unit gets slaughtered. <laughs> Jack ends up taking a shortcut through a haunted swamp where he meets a southern folksy version of the devil posing as an escaped slave, Nick Slick. Nick invites Jack to play poker and takes him for everything, including his clothes, until Jack cheats on the final hand and takes Nick's magic bag that never gets full. Nick acts upset, but of course, when a con man cheats the devil, there's going to be a lesson to be learned. Later, Jack stumbles across the home of a paralyzed young Southern Belle about to succumb to death, but he saves her by trapping the Grim Reaper in Nick Slick's bag. Of course, with death removed from reality, nothing can die, and Jack learns very 
quickly what happens when you try and cheat the devil. Willingham's Fables was one of my favorite Vertigo books, and it is infinitely rereadable. Jack Horner is a fantastic scoundrel that routinely thinks he's more clever than he is and escapes most of his dire straits he puts himself in through dumb luck. He's kind of like an Inspector Gadget if, if Inspector Gadget was a shithead, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'd later find out that Jack has been making deals with demons and devils for years, thinking he's smart enough to con his way out of all of them. Slick Nick here is exactly as described in old blues songs about selling your soul for fame. He's unassuming. He's playing simple, but he's keenly aware of your own faults and how to use them against you. Now, Brian Talbot, he's an incredible artist who I recently just criticized for his work on the yes, Sandman Dead Boy right. Detective miniseries. Right. Yeah. It is not that his art was bad. And if you go back and listen to my review, we both say the art here is not bad. It just did not work for that ghost story. For sure. Here, his clean, detailed it's line. Like, it was like night and day. Yes. Here, his clean, detailed line lends itself perfectly to this Southern folktale turned horror movie. And if you need more evidence of that, see the panel with a group of living beheaded farm animals to show you how good this guy is. I'm giving this a gigantic buy it. Yeah, of course, uh, this was great. I I love Fables, uh, same as you. This issue was really fun to revisit. I haven't read it. Uh, I I, I used to reread Fables on the regular, like the first four volumes or so of Fables are among my favorite comics. I haven't reread it in a long time and I was so happy to revisit it. It's a great issue. I love Jack. Uh, he would later go on to get his own spinoff series called Jack of Fables, which is yeah. a lot of fun uh, if you've never read it. And uh, yeah, this is a huge buy it. it. It's exactly Jack. It's the Jack of the tales. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's so many characters in that fables book that I love that I forget about Jack. I forget about how much I love this character. Cause he's like, he's not someone to root for. He's a shithead. He's a liar. He's a con man. Oh yeah. No, he's he the, thinks, he's the guy you, you love to hate. Yeah. He thinks he's super hot shit. He accidentally does some good stuff sometimes and then never lets anyone forget that he did it. <laughs> you know? Right. He's just great. If you want to know more about these comics, check out our show notes where you can find links for all the books we discussed and hit us up on our THN review slash CLB show channel in our discord to give us your thoughts. Joe, before we step out of this salt pentagram that is protecting us, we need to pick one of these devilish comics to enter the THN permanent collection. What was your favorite book in this infernal pile? You know, this was hard for me uh, because I was so pleasantly surprised by some of the things that we read. You're going to pick Spawn, uh, like aren't you? <laughs> no, uh, not that, not that pleasantly surprised. But like the Ghost Rider issue was like, oh, so great. And obviously Hellblazer is a classic. Um, but I think I'm sticking with my guns and, and giving it to Black Panther. Black Panther is just uh, Christopher Priest's Black Panther is as is as close as it gets to like the perfect comic run. I, yeah. I love it so much. I don't disagree. It's a great cap to the first arc. It shows exactly why T'Challa specifically and Wakanda in general are not to be trifled with. And um, yeah, I love it. I think it's a great issue. Mine's Hellblazer 45. It, it's just one of the best issues, single issues Garth Ennis has ever written. It's clever. It's nasty. It's scary. It's everything John Constantine should be boiled down 
into a little rock that you can put on a spoon and freebase and be like, God damn, that is some Hellblazer shit there. Why'd you have to make it gross? <laughs> it's what he does, man. Garth Ennis is this gross guy. <laughs> Matt, can we please stop playing Devil Worshipper now? Please, this goat blood tastes terrible. You get used to it. It grows on you. <laughs> I say we head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where I'm going to hose myself down with holy water, just like in that meatloaf song, while you make your must-read pick for next Wednesday, June 8th. Joe, I'd do anything for love, and I will also do this, okay? My pick for next week is Aquaman Andromeda, number one from DC Black Label. I should have said I gotta know right now. <laughs> That's which a different I know song, is a different That's song. a different song, no. I know it's a different stay song. Stay in the shtick, still. come on. <laughs> this is written by Ram V with art by Christian Ward. Here's your solicit. Deep in the Pacific Ocean, at the farthest possible distance from any land, sits Point Nemo, the spaceship graveyard. Since the dawn of the space race, the nations of the world have sent their crafts there on splashdown to sink beneath the silent seas. But there is something else at Point Nemo. A structure never made by man. And that structure seems to be dot 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 waking up. The crew of the experimental submarine Andromeda, powered by a mysterious black hole drive, have been chosen to investigate this mystery, but they aren't the only ones pursuing it. Anything of value beneath the ocean is of value to the master pirate, Black Manta. And anything that attracts Black Manta attracts his boyfriend, Arthur Curry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> his lifelong foe, the Aquaman. But his hetero life mate. Yeah, see, like, Arthur this was your chance Curry. to, like, give us that story where, like, Black Manta and Aquaman were like, why are we fighting? Secret we, lovers. We, yeah. just, we just wanted to kiss this whole time. Ex-boyfriends. You know? yeah. <laughs> Happy Pride Month. I love you, Black Manta. <laughs> But heaven help them all when the doors of the mystery of Point Nemo swing wide to admit them in. Dot, dot, dot. Bringing a bracing cosmic horror sensibility to the world of Aquaman, rising superstars Ram V, who worked on Venom, The Swamp Thing, and Christian Ward, who worked on Thor and Invisible Kingdom, team up to put Arthur Curry through an exercise in psychological terror that could break the will of even a king. I love Ram V. I'm a huge fan. I forgot this comic was even again coming. dc no promotion whatsoever dc's just dropping it out there unless your name is tom I king i haven't seen any ads for it yeah unless your name is tom king i think your black label book gets no promotion that's just how it goes i love cosmic horror <laughs> whenever you get into that shit i'm totally down yeah. i think they're taking a shot with aquaman here this sounds fun as hell the preview for the art is gorgeous it looks psychedelic. I must say, uh, Aquaman wild. is an unlucky choice for cosmic horror. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, real quick, before we move on, check this shit out. This is a book that also comes out next week called "Where Starships Go to Die." Number oh, one. Let me read you the solicit real quick. Point Nemo, the farthest oceanic point on the Earth from any landmass, a spacecraft graveyard where rockets and satellites can safely be ditched on the ocean floor in a near oh, future. Oh, it must be real. It's a real thing. But two yeah. books about Point Nemo are coming out in the same week? This Weird. one is, yeah, this one, which I plan on reviewing because it looks kick-ass. It's Mark Sable and Alberto Locati with Jeremy Hahn doing some art for it. It sounds really cool. Who's putting it out? Aftershock. I was trying to make my oh. pick for next week, and I was like, that sounds interesting. And then I read the uh, Aquaman solicit, and I went, oh, they must have mixed up the solicits. And then I put them side by side, and I went, no, <laughs> these are different books. 
How that's weird. The hell does that happen? <laughs> I don't know. That's that's quite a coincidence. Yeah, I think these creative teams have to have a gang fight to settle this. Good old fashioned gang uh, fight. Yeah, you know, I I think that uh, D uh, like the uh, black label boys are probably a little bit well more well armed. You know, they've got a bigger gang fight budget. Probably Jeremy Han though. He's he's wily man. No that promotion guy, though. He'll stab so. you. Yeah. <laughs> and we all know that uh, Mark Sable is. Uh, Ruthless. Yeah, that you don't guy f- with not, Mark Sable. Uh, that guy's crazy. My pick for next week is, of course, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't help myself. It's Dark Crisis number one. Yeah, I do it too. I get morbidly. I, cur- I just gotta know. I I've just, gotta know I, these events. I mean, let's, let me tell you. Like this week, The Road to Dark Crisis came out. It was an anthology book, and it's exactly what we say about all anthology books. It was about half, half uh, completely figure- forgettable nonsense. Yeah. With and half like kind of okay with a one story that had some of the worst Dan Jurgens art I've ever seen. He must have had like five minutes to finish yeah, it. Yeah, it looked bad. It looked um, really bad. I mean, I like Dan Jurgens, and this too. was bad. I do too. But I, I am morbidly curious about Dark Crisis and the idea that like all crises spring from one thing. And uh, I'm into it. So it's written by Joshua Williamson with art by Daniel Sampier. Here's your solicit. Crisis on Infinite Earths, Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis, and now dot, 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 Dark Crisis. The epic event, years in the making, is finally here. Superman, Batman, Warner Woman, and the rest of the Justice League are deed. The remaining heroes are left to protect the world from an onslaught of violent attacks by DC's greatest villains. Can the legacy heroes step out of the shadows of the classic heroes to form a new Justice League? And will that be enough to stop a darkness greater than anything they've ever faced from destroying everything? Don't miss out on the first issue of the blockbuster event of the summer. It's Dark Crisis. Uh, I will say this. Though the art was bad, uh, there were two stories in The Road to Dark Crisis, one with Nightwing and one with Wally, um, where they were b- both teamed up with their perspective. Like, well, Wally was with Wallace, Kid well, Flash. Let's and, not confuse anyone. This is a different book. This is The Road yeah, to yeah, Dark no, Crisis. Uh, okay. but, uh, but like, I like the take on it. And Williamson wrote, I think, either both stories. He definitely wrote the Nightwing one. And Nightwing is teaming up with Superman, son of Kal-El, uh, John Kent. Uh, who is like his mentee, which I think is great. And both uh, uh, Kid Flash and the new Superman are like, why aren't you freaking out? Why are you like acting like everything's fine? Like what's going on? And both Dick and Wally are like, look, (laughs) we've been through this many times before (laughs) (laughs) and you weren't there. You don't understand. Right. I understand that it looks bad. It's not that I'm not taking it seriously. It's that I'm not going to act like, oh no, my dad is dead. Right. Because I don't think my dad is dead. Yeah. Bro. Do you know how many times the world is cracked in half? (laughs) Like uh, like my best friend Wally got erased from existence and now he's back. I had dinner at his house. This will be fine. (laughs) Uh, But like, I like that spin on it. And um, uh, I think Williamson's done a good job, like threading that needle, setting up a new crisis while also paying homage to the past while also not treading too familiar ground. He's like, look, his stories are the first one to say, I know we've been there. It's okay. Right. I trust me. Yeah. Williamson seems so like in this I, one, I he's like, him. we're going to have a fun ride. Just come with me. We're going to have a fun yep. ride. You exactly. we all know it's going to be fine. Like, of course it's going to be fine. You know, he's earned it. He's earned it. F- and I'm giving it to him. Right. 
The THN trade for next week, June 8th, goes to Dark Arc, Complete Arc, the hardcover from Boom. It is $59.99. This was written by Cullen Bunn with art by Wando. Here's your solicit. The wickedness of mankind has moved the creator to destroy the world by way of the flood. Noah has been tasked with building an ark to save his family and the animals of the world. But this is not Noah's story. For darker powers have commanded the sorcerer, Shrey, I can't even say it, S-H-R-A-E. <laughs> Shrey. To build his own ark and save the unnatural creatures of the world, the vampires, the dragons, and the manticore. But what will happen on a vessel crawling with monsters where insidious intrigue and horrific violence are the rule of law? A sinister saga of biblical proportions from Master of Horror, Cullen Bunn, and Wando. We just reviewed uh, Wando's anthology Spectro last week. The guy is amazing. His art is incredible. And this is Cullen Bunn going full, insane, biblical horror. This book was so much fun. This contains the entire Dark Ark series, as well as the follow-up series, Dark Ark After the Flood. I, I can't, I seriously... It's so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Dark Ark is good. I can't push us on uh, you enough. And, you know, Colin Bunn, Independent Horror. It's, uh, it's on our it's list of things does. that are always fun. It's always fun to does. check out. Yeah. You can find links to these picks in our show notes, and we always post our must-read picks on our Discord, Twitter, and Facebook every Wednesday. So you can make an informed buying decision at your local comic shop, but let us know what you thought of our picks. Matt. What's a good place for them to do that? The new comic section of our Discord, baby. It's where we talk yeah. about what we're freaking out about every week. I post our picks there. Everybody else posts their picks. John Literal posts his cover of the week. It's super fun. Use it. Tell us what yeah, you want to read. John Literal posts his cover of the week, and then you steal it. We both, I, I didn't even look before I picked mine. We picked uh -huh. independently. Yeah, we right. both got there. Sure. You put yeah. Skeletor on a cover, and we're both going to be like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not Skeletor, but it's It's scary. Mongol, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not. I thought not. it was Mongol. No. I guess I didn't get a good It's look from at Wants it. and Future. No, no. His pick of the... No, his cover of the week was um, Action Comics Annual. Oh, I didn't pick that one. I picked the cover of Wants and Future. Oh, you... I was just... Me you were I was just threatening action? you. Well, some bitch. That's my cover. Then I steal it. Then I steal it. Excelsior! Oh, That is it for THN 666. And next week, we're back to reviewing new comics. Thank God, my pastor is real worried about me. <laughs> Plus, we're going to give you a sneak peek at our Patreon Extra, where the Defenders return. And this time, our own THN historian, Jason Sachs, is going to try and defend Secret Wars Two. <laughs> and we're gonna give it its we're gonna give Ooh. it a fair shake. We're gonna, we're gonna go gonna into read, it. We're gonna read the main series. Open we're gonna mind. go into it with open minds. Our yes. minds are like parachutes. Neither one of us has read it. If you want to wrap about this week's episode, any comics you read, or any of the weekly nerdy news we're following in our nerd news segment on our Discord, hit us up on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover. It happens on Saturdays at 11 Central Time. You can watch the broadcast live on Facebook, but if you want to play along, you got to join our Discord where you can learn how to chat or talk with us live on the show. And don't forget, we got a question of the week to get your discussion started. That's right. This week's question is courtesy of Real General Pancakes on the Ziggurat Worldwide Discord. Here's a quote. 
I'm relatively new to comics, only a few years in, and I find myself falling in love with certain styles of art and artists, so much so that I buy original pages as well as scour back issue bins and the vastness of the comic book internet to collect every issue or trade that a specific favorite artist has worked on. My question to you is this. Is there an artist? Uh, let's just say a creator. Is there a creator whose work you love so much that you have to have everything they've ever worked on and more? I think this is art specific. I, think I don't think it has to be because I don't collect art. I mean, I suppose, but he's talking about like buying pages and stuff like that in comics, you know. Um, and yeah, I would, but and you I could think the story like lifts back. Like, look, there's books that I bought of artists where look, I don't like you, the writer. This, this look, I'm saying creator. If you want to talk about an artist, you can. All right, all right. Like, why, why limit it? I just think the soul of this question was artist, but well, I, yes, but guess who's in charge of the show? We are. I am. Sorry, real general <laughs> pancakes. Your title is in name only. You didn't fight in the Great Pancake War. I believe you skipped that one. You know, like, so uh, General Pan General Pancake. You, you know, served this my close to Memorial in the Great Day. War. You're gonna make jokes like this this close to Memorial Day. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, these pancakes don't run. Okay. Uh, my, the syrup uh, this doesn't run. It was right there. Run. I'm Come sorry. <laughs> Look, Jesus. we've been talking for two hours. I can't so write tired. everything, Joe. <laughs> uh, all right. So is there a creator that you love so much that you have to have everything they've ever worked on and more? We're talking about single issues, artists' editions, sketches, original art pages, Omnibuy, deluxe hardcovers. You get it. If it comes out with your favorite's name on it, you gots to buy it. It's that easy. All right. We uh, please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. We appreciate it. And uh, I know that sometimes we have to miss episodes, but we do do this as often as we can. And we like it when you guys come up with content so that we don't have to. And we got a question of the week section in our discord. It's great. I know it is. It's great. And I think uh, we, I already have our next question all lined up uh, and it's a doozy. It's a good one. If you can't be there live, shoot an MP3 to two nerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the THN hotline. That number is 402-819-4894. You could be internet famous. Uh, please do keep your recorded messages short. We have a lot of air to share with all of the live nerds, and we just appreciate it. If you can't be there live, you know, just we'll cut you off if we think you're going on too long. That's, That's just how it goes. If you're new to this show and you would rather contract the disease than listen to any more, I assure you, <laughs> it's only because you haven't heard enough. Good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box. That will never box. stop being funny. It's that will never best. stop being funny. You can find that at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would it's not, a joke about cancer. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like another Canadian patron. Mr. Logan Drydale, it's time to just rip the Band-Aid off and say it. We're the number one comic book podcast in Canada. There it is. You know, I'm there ready it to say it, and the, the beauty of having your own podcast is that you don't need to worry about whether or not something is true before true. you say it out loud. Well, it is if we say it. So if you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. Sign up to be a patron. Patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. You know how you it works. You don't have to be Canadian. No. But it helps. Or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal because uh, maybe you're not Canadian. Maybe you're just like some anarchist shithead American who's like, just like, I got so much money, I don't even care. Blech. There you go. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to outgoing Marvel executive Joe Casada. Joey Q has announced that he'd be leaving after 22 years at Marvel. Uh, you may recall if you're old like us that he got his start as an artist before 
uh, becoming a uh, you know a, a writer and editor alongside his partner Jimmy Palmiotti. They were given the reins of uh, a new imprint called Marvel Knights, which ended up rejuvenating the likes of Daredevil, the aforementioned Black Panther. The Punisher and many other characters. He became editor in chief where he served for uh, several years and he became, after that in 2011, VP and creative director. The dude's been at Marvel for 22 years. Crazy. But he still has creative plans in the uh, Marvel Universe and he wants to get back to his own creator own work. Word to you, Mr. Q. You've been the driving force behind so much incredible Marvel work for most of our adult lives, but more importantly, Ash fans everywhere rejoice. Joe Q's Super Fireman is back, baby. Oof. Until next time, true relievers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just spray his fire hose all over your stack. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Secondary shout out to friend of the show, Kevin Coffey and his wife, Ashley. They just found out they're having a third boy. Oh, shit. Kevin still hasn't figured out where babies come from, huh? Nope. Somebody needs to tell that guy. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs>